everybody, my name is Remy. Welcome to the For the Love podcast with your host, Jen Hatmaker, my mom. She writes books and speaks to crowds, but she mostly loves talking to amazing people on this podcast every week. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy the show. Hey, everybody, it's Jen Hatmaker. Welcome to the For the Love podcast. Super glad you are here today. And you are going to be super glad you're here today. We are in the middle of a series that is just giving me so much life. It's for the love of exploring our faith. And we just have some of the wisest and the kindest and the most intelligent and faithful leaders I in our culture right now. And today's guest is no exception. Today we have on Ian Morgan Cron. And if you know him, you're already clapping. So Ian is a best-selling author. He's an Enneagram teacher, which we're going to talk about at length. He's a psychotherapist. He's an Episcopal priest. And he has an amazing podcast based on the Enneagram called Typology, which you will love if you're an Enneagrammer. So if, if you're not familiar with it, let me give you a quick overview um, on the Enneagram, since we're going to talk about it a lot, but not so much its description. The Enneagram is a, it's kind of a personality typing system that teaches that there are nine basic personality types in the world. Um, and each is tied and don't let this freak you out to one of the seven deadly sins, um, plus two that someone added along the way. So no one felt left out. Um, so don't let that feel dark and scary to you because it's actually just goes to sort of our core motivation, um, for why we do what we do. So a person's type um, is determined by discovering that unconscious motivation that very, very powerfully influences the way that we are in the world. Um, so the goal is to better understand who we are, who other people are, and who God is and our relationship to God. So um, let me just run through the list real quick before Ian and I get started. One is called the perfectionist. Two, the helper, three, the achiever, and uh, spoiler alert, I'm a three, except Ian and I had a really interesting conversation during this following podcast in which he questions my diagnosis. So be listening for that. Uh, Four, the individualist, five, the investigator, six, the loyalist, seven, the enthusiast, eight, the challenger, and nine, the peacemaker. So we're going to talk to him about all of that. So he's an incredible writer. His books include Chasing Francis, um, his spiritual memoir that I read years ago and loved, Jesus, My Father, the CIA, and Me. You will love that. You will love it. Um, And then The Road Back to You, which is an Enneagram journey to self-discovery. So he is really good in this space, you guys. Really smart, really wise, really funny, which makes me glad. Um, and he has presented and taught and led in so many capacities, um, conferences and churches and retreats and universities literally around the world. So he and his wife, Anne, have three three kids, grown kids, and they live in Nashville. So this conversation was really fascinating and he's funny, but he is, he's providing for us in the next one hour, a really wonderful roadmap to health, to joy, to community, to hope. You're going to love this. You're going to be encouraged by it. So you guys welcome Ian to the show. Ian, welcome to the show. I'm really, <laughs> I'm so excited you're here today. Well, vice versa. I'm, I'm as excited as you are, I think. 
that can't be. I've been a fan of yours for a long time. And, um, I, I want to tell you right off the bat, I mean, right before we even get into it, um, that one thing I love about you, um, and your work is that, you know, it's so heady and it's, it's deep waters. You know, you're such a, you're writing about really important things and deep things and introspective things and requires a lot of intelligence and focus, but you're so funny. And that makes me so happy. Thank you for being funny. <laughs> I'm so grateful. Oh, well, I mean it. That is kind. I appreciate it. There's a, I guess there are advantages to growing up in a dysfunctional Irish family. So, <laughs> A silver lining, if you will. Yes, right. Uh, humor, humor is the best defense. Uh, it's so funny. We'll get into it later, but I am a, I'm a three on the Enneagram. And so I don't care for self-introspection, self as you can imagine. I just like it all to be on the outside. What, what is everybody seeing me doing? Do I have any gold stars? Um, and so if somebody's going to force me to do a lot of interior work, I like them to be funny. So you're, you're my person. Um, <laughs> uh, so look in the intro talked a little bit about, um, your role as an Enneagram teacher. And I want to dive into that a little bit further. So I mentioned that, and I've had, um, I've had Chris Hertz on the show before too. So this is our second round on some Enneagram talk around this podcast, but, um, I I've mentioned before that it's essentially like a personality assessment. That's probably a low hanging term for what this is, but it's super popular right now, even though it's been around a really long time, everybody is constantly talking about their types in my friend groups. Those of us who are Enneagram people, it's like, we cannot get three sentences without somebody go, but you know me, I'm an eight. So we just, we love to drop it like it's hot all the time. We're constantly doing that. When we first discovered the Enneagram and I'm, I'm a three married to a two. And so Brandon tells me I'm a two and he's explaining this to me and we're walking through like all the points of connection. I mean, to tell you, I did not have that information in hand, not 12 hours. I promise you not 12. I had barely even sat on, I didn't even know what it was. I was new and he did something the next day and I just was like shaking my head. Classic two. You know, like oh. I'm already that person. I'm oh. already that person. Oh, fix, mm. fix us all. No, but seriously, I think just a lot of us love getting a little insight into ourselves and the Enneagram is such an amazing tool. Such an amazing tool for this, um, which is probably why you're so passionate about it. Um, so can you just tell us a little bit about your introduction to this space and your development in it and your experience with it, especially early on? Yeah. Well, um, I was first introduced to the Enneagram in the 1990s. I was mm. doing a, a master's in counseling, and I went up to a, a Catholic retreat center Um uh, just for a couple of days of reflection, and I came across Richard Rohr's book, sure. The Enneagram: uh, uh -huh. A Christian Approach. And I, I, you know, I'm, I love to read, and so I, I, you know, I picked it up, started going at it, and I, I remember thinking to myself, I'm a year into graduate school hmm. for a, a psychology degree, and where has this been? Right, <laughs> you know? totally. Like, I have been reading all this incredibly cerebral, abstract mm. material, and I'm like, oh my gosh, this is so accessible and uncannily accurate mm. in its portrayal of the inner terrain of, you know, just about everyone I've, I've ever met in my life, and particularly myself, you know. And so after that, I, I did some training, I, I you know sort of kept up with it, but not as deeply as I wanted. Cause you know, I mean, I was starting to have babies. We were right. moving, we were, you know, I was taking over a practice and then started a church, blah, blah, blah. Life got too hectic. About six or seven years ago, um, through a confluence of different 
you know, sort of a synchronicity of events, right? I I just decided I was going to plunge, do a headlong plunge into this thing. And um, what I realized as I studied it was, oh my gosh, like we need this yeah. more than ever. We mm-hmm. need it more than ever right now. So yeah. I was really, I got really excited, really excited. So you just dug in, you started reading everything you can find, studying, learning, immersing yourself. What were, what were the training options for you at that point? In the yeah, Enneagram. Well, yeah. Well, once I go down a wormhole, I'm like a Hoover. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yes. Like I am, I am a knowledge Hoover. I go down. <laughs> I don't come out. I stop showering. Right. I stop eating well. I mean, I just go down. And I, you know, I, I there's a, a good number of books, not not as many as you'd think, but, you know, I read everything. I went to, uh, you know, Riso and Hudson training. I'm, you know, work with Helen Palmer uh, and their their group. I, I mean, it just was. I went all in, and mm-hmm. uh, I, um, I mean, in part because I unlike things like Strength Finders or Disc or MBTI, right. all these great. They're great instruments. I'm not. I'm not knocking them. But this particular instrument, or if we can call it that, let's let's call it sacred psychology, if you will. Okay, um, oh, that's a good term. That I I think what it does is it. It reveals to us not only who we are at our best, but but who we are at our worst. Yeah. And how those two are actually the flip side of one another, mm-hmm. and what we can do to actually experience enduring change spiritually. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and then finally, I think the thing that's so cool about it is that it just ups the self awareness quotient in human beings, which is, sure you know, it's, and, and particularly in faith communities, communities, it's a sorely overlooked uh, discipline, you know? Uh, and I think, uh, you know, you think about what, like what Calvin said, I mean, the beginning of the Institute's first page, without knowledge of self, there is no knowledge of God. Yeah. Holy smokes. That's right. a gigantic idea. It uh, is. So anyhow, that you can tell I'm enthusiastic. Right? Yeah, but, I love that because you're right. That's that's not typically the narrative that any of us have ever learned in church, or frankly, are learning now. Um, that that deep sense of knowing oneself. I think there's more. Well, this is of course my experience, so I can't paint with too wide a brush. But there's more this sense of there's one way to know yourself. You're just a sinner. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like yes. you're kind of all the same. You're one big block of like human garbage and God will fix it. And so rather this very nuanced understanding of who you are as an individual, like made in the image of God, it really does. And we're going to get into this in a minute, but it really does not just change your perspective of who you are and how your relationships are functioning, but how you feel about God and how yeah. you're understanding God. And so, um, I, I, I think in that term, in that, in that respect, it is a major spiritual tool. I mean, just mm-hmm. sitting there getting overlooked by most of us who yes. are leading spiritually in any capacity. Would you mind doing this for me? I, I know I'm going to have some listeners who don't know what we're talking about. <laughs> They're like, right. what are these two yammering about? Um, I, I know it's, it's really hard to, to, to do it succinctly, obviously, because it's, it's complex and there's a lot of components to it, but could you maybe just give a bit of an overview on the Enneagram for people who are listening and don't know about it? Sure. So the Enneagram is an ancient personality typology that suggests there are nine core personality types in the world, one of which people gravitate toward in early childhood and adopt in order to 
cope and just feel safe in the world, right? right. We, we contain all nine types, right? But there's one that's our dominant type. It's our default position, right? We're just, it's like true north. We just click into mm. it when we're, you know, going about life. And if you think right. about personality, uh, because it's kind of a moving term, target term, you know, it, it mm. it's just the way we typically act, think, and feel, see the world, process information mm -hmm. on a regular basis over, and we've done it since as far back as we can remember in our particular yeah. type or style. Now, what, deline what really matters with the Enneagram is, and what separates it from so many other typologies is, it's not based on traits or characteristics. It's mm. really based on an unconscious motivation that powerfully influences the way we typically act, think, feel, mm. et cetera. So the way you determine your type isn't by, oh, well, I do this or I do that, because right. you do everything in every type at some point. It, right. It, what's your underlying or for the most usually hidden or unconscious motivation that's driving it. That determines type. Absolutely. I, when I um, first began reading about that, it was, it was that exact space, the, the deep seated motivation where it was like looking in a mirror. That's where the, mm. that's where I went, Oh, there I am. And specifically um, the unhealthy version of my number. Mm -hmm. I felt like I had been spied on. It was terrible. It was humiliating. Mm -hmm. I couldn't believe that just anybody could pick up your book and find out how gross I am when I'm bad. Like, Oh no, <laughs> I've been found out. It's so oh. terrible. It's so true. It's just, it's very precise. It's yeah. incredibly precise. And I think would, um, but it's such a great and amazing useful tool. I like what you said about self-awareness because it has helped our marriage so much. Mm. And I would love to hear you talk about any examples you have of people that you've worked with, because it's not just a self-awareness tool, as you mentioned, it is a relational tool. It is a communal mm -hmm. tool. It is a faith community tool. I mean, it, it really, it, it, it lends so much aid to us as we have to work with each other and marry each other and parent people and, um, be in a, in a church with people who are opposite from us. So do you have any examples of um, people that you've worked with or groups that you've worked with, um, either churches or corporations, um, specifically how they have used, all the insights of the Enneagram to change maybe how they work together or how they coexist together? Do they use it for structural changes or any of that? Do you have an example like that? Oh my gosh. It's, uh, I mean, the list is endless, right? Love it. I mean, the, I was at a, um, an organization over the weekend in Indianapolis and, um, they brought me in and they had, you know, read, read my book. I was coming to do a, a day and a half long workshop with them. And they said, oh, we want to show you something. And they walked me down the hallway. It was a very long hallway. Uh, and uh, on the side of the door uh, was the person's name, right, on a little plaque and their Enneagram number. Oh, interesting. On every wow. door, everybody had their Enneagram number underneath wow. their name. That's amazing. And, uh, I was at the Discovery Channel a couple of, maybe about a year ago, and did a mm -hmm. workshop for them. And the Monday following, uh, the person who had brought me in said, you're not going to believe this, but we were in a meeting the other day well, that had threes, the achievers, who have very little patience. They were sales guys and women. Right. They had very little patience for details, right? right? And they were going over some sales data, and one of these guys raised his hand and said, 
Could someone let the threes out of the room and bring <laughs> bring in the ones? Because we have no interest in this. <laughs> you know? So and amazing. I mean, it's, oh, it, it is. And it's just, you know, I, I got to say that, that, you know, the greatest mystery in our lives next to God is ourselves. Mm, that's good. You know, I mean, we, we, and we yearn, and I think we yearn to be understood because I think everybody feels misunderstood. Everybody sure. feels like they're suffering alone, right? And mm. nobody suffers quite like they do. Everybody feels sure. fundamentally flawed. Um, mm. And so, man, when you find out, oh, this is not just about my brokenness, but about my beauty. Mm, it, I like it's that. Not, it, it's not just about my original sin. It's about my original goodness. Yes. Yeah, that's the and key so, difference to me. Right there. Oh, yeah. In a faith mm-hmm. context, for sure, is we do not talk about that enough. Um, sin yeah, is check, covered. But yeah. all this like, beautiful, the way that we're created, the goodness we're capable of, it's so inspiring and it's empowering. And I love that part of the Enneagram mm-hmm. work. Yeah, I mean, I think, in fact, I mean, I'm not, this is going to be overstated for the sake of illustration, but I mean, think about it from a marketing perspective, okay? Mm-hmm. Here's the marketing of the church in many instances. You suck. Right. <laughs> God had to kill somebody to save you. Right. Come join our church. <laughs> oh, gosh. Now, okay. So what would happen if you said to people, you are beautiful beyond your mm-hmm. imagination. Okay. You are, you know, broken like the rest of us. Mm-hmm. Come experience uh, restoration. Mm, uh, become it. more beautiful. And uh, and of course the enneagram helps this because well, you know mm. it's not perfect it's not the Rosetta Stone I didn't find it sure. in a cave in the middle right. in Syria you know like with Harrison Ford <laughs> I mean it's it's just a tool but man it, it just helps illuminate the shadow that's good or you see that's the blind good. spots and you go oh there I am I gotta I gotta mm. I gotta get in the river of grace where it runs mm. the swiftest and where God can do for me what I cannot do for myself which mm. is heal those places. That's right. And it, it does it with a surprising lack of shame. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's why I'm so drawn to it, that um, it's sort of, uh, in some ways, matter of fact, like this is, this is okay to you that you're not stuck here. You're never stuck. You're never stuck when you're at your lowest or at your darkest or at your most unhealthy. And not only are you not stuck, but for me, what the Enneagram has provided is this spiritual footpath back to wholeness, back to health, because it says, all right, this is, let's, this is who you are. This is what's motivating you right now. Um, this is, this is why you're making these choices. This is exactly what you're afraid of. So here are some best practices to put into place, usually counterintuitive for me. Um, and these will lead you back to the, the better version of who you, who you've been made to be. And, and so I find it useful, not just interesting. Cause at first it's just interesting, right? You know, at first, of course, uh, well, I'm a three. Hello. Somebody's going to talk to me about myself. How exciting. Mm-hmm. Let's talk more about me. <laughs> you know, what else do you want to say about well, me? I'm a, I'm a four. So I trump oh, you oh, on that. Oh, you're very special. Oh, <laughs> yes. Special and unique, baby. I, I, if you want to talk about me, I can go all night long. All night long. <laughs> so true. It's so fascinating at first. And just at, at intellectual level, this uh, 
just, but then if you can stay with it and if you can hang on to it and, and it becomes really useful and mm-hmm. really, really, um, uh, special in a relational context. I want to go back speaking of relational context. So you mentioned this a minute ago, but it was a quote that I had pulled to already talk about. So it encapsulates what, something you said, but I've got a broader, um, version of your quote. So you said, the Enneagram helps you know yourself so you can better un- understand yourself and others. And in the context of relationship and participation, know God. So in a time when dualistic thinking often trumps compassion, the wisdom of the Enneagram provides both understanding and a path for more Christ-like behavior. I'd like to hear you talk about that a little bit. Can you Can you tell us a little bit more about this concept of dualistic thinking? Mm-hmm. specifically as you see it in our world right this minute um, and how knowing our own tendencies and the tendencies of the people around us that we love or that we work with or live by might bring more compassion between us. Because I think I can't think of a time in my adult life when we needed more compassion in our culture right now. It just feels incredibly polarized and angry and mean and divided. And I think this could be, one of the solutions that helps us heal. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. I mean, I, um, I'm with you. I, I, I some days despair a little bit in my worst moments. You know, I, I look at the world and I think, oh my gosh, we, yes, we are so polarized. We, we are afflicted with so much uh, closed heartedness and cynicism. Mm. And, um, I think one of the beautiful things about the Enneagram and, and how it can speak into our current day dilemma is it does help us move away from dualistic thinking. In other words, uh, for sake of this time, for brevity, but dualistic thinking is uh, the tendency to see the world in black and white terms, right? Mm. Everything is either or, or it's yes. friend, or, friend or foe, or you're for me or you're against me. You're like, you're one of us right. or you're not one of us, you know, et cetera. Yep. Now, uh, and, and for people who are thinking in those categories, then things like paradox and nuance get thrown out the window. They become problems, about mm. which you're anxious. You know what I mean? Like you're, That's uh, right. I got to have those things be black or white. That's, you mm. know, this, you know, gray is not on my color wheel, you know? That's right. And so, well, of course that, that leads to all kinds of relational problems um, mm. because for all the obvious reasons, people can't be fit into categories of either or black or white. I mean, human beings right. are infinitely more complex than that. So when we can understand difference, right? Mm. When we can look at the other uh, through with the with the knowledge that e- every single person on the enneagram sees the world through a different lens. We don't mm. see the world the same, and that cultivates or allows to emerge uh, compassion, understanding. Mm. I mean, you can't. I've recently read a book by the Buddhist monk Thich Nhat Hanh, and he mm-hmm. he was talking about how understanding must precede love. I mean. Otherwise, you may love somebody in a way, if you don't understand them, that might hurt them. Hmm, good point. That makes sense? You know? Mm-hmm. So I think what the Enneagram does is it makes you go, oh, uh, I see the singular wound that mm-hmm. is driving the way you see the world and the way that you think, act, and feel. And, you know, in the Christian tradition, I, you know, compassion tends to be viewed as um, a little bit like pity. If you 
Sure. It's almost like uh, you're a person who's in a superior position reaching down to down to somebody in a lesser, mm. you know, whether it's economic right. or social like way. Condescending. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I think compassion has is, is sort of radically mutual. It's mm. It's one person looking into the eyes of another and saying, the loneliness or the fear or the sadness in me sees the loneliness, the fear, and the sadness in you. Mm. And in that way, the, it's almost like a, a, as if there were a bell in each of our respective chests that sympathetically ring with each other because now we know that, mm-hmm. that we share these afflictions and the Enneagram helps us see the, that the brokenness and beauty. And then you go, Oh, now, now you're no longer a category. Now you're Mm. a human being. I have to relate with too, you know? Yeah. I think that's really powerful. And it's so interesting. I I mean, I, I feel these, I feel that instinct at war in my own self Mm -hmm. right now where everything feels urgent and so much of the, rhetoric in the, in our culture right now, it, it's, it's not just words. It's obviously affecting real lives and, um, and people are at stake. And so I feel that even in my own heart, this tendency to spot even the slightest weakness in someone else's argument or support and just write them off and mm-hmm. it's gross. Mm-hmm. And, and people have done that to me in, in mass and it's so painful it's so incredibly painful to be dismissed like that. And, mm-hmm. um, for, for enormous parts of your character and your life and your faithfulness to just be swept off the table, mm-hmm. um, in, in, in favor of just sort of a caricature of who you are. And so I think this is really important, but I think it's really hard. And I love this idea while we're talking about it. And then I, I struggle to sometimes put it in practice. Um, and so I wonder what you would, how would you coach us, um, in, in public dialogue in, um, in civic dialogue, um, and in faith dialogue, which is where the brunt of my tension lives, um, toward becoming that type of compassionate neighbor, and citizen and listener, um, what are some, how would you say, let's put boots on the ground there. How would you advise us to begin to best practices, um, to create that kind of community, the one we actually all want? Mm. Yeah. I was recently with a friend of mine who's a, uh, teaches medicine at, at Vanderbilt and he teaches doctors, um, about, compassion, awareness, mindfulness, because, you know, as you know, doctors don't have necessarily a reputation for warmth, right? Right. You know, so anyway, he said, well, first thing he tells people is his young, his young students, he, he says, I want you to look at every patient as though there's a smile behind your eyes. Hmm. And I thought, so that the gaze is one of warmth and kindness and interest, right? Mm. So that's a teeny little thing, but what a, it's, I thought it was such a beautiful little tweak, right? Um, mm. The other thing is I, I try to go into conversations, even ones that are hot, by saying I might be wrong. That's good. That idea is always in the back of my mind. You know, I might be wrong. That's uh, good. And then I also – um, would say that, like, for example, and this is the Enneagram man has helped me with this a million times over, is 
when I start to have like when when emotions start to arise, like I'm angry or yeah. I'm, I'm incredulous, right? Or if I'm watching, mm. I just I now have an ability to stop. I, I do this thing called snap. I came up with God. I know I hate. I know I hate you know those <laughs> things. But but you know I've been in recovery from alcohol from, from being an alcoholic for thirty yes. years, and so every now and then I know that they can be very helpful, right? So that's fine. You can uh, have an acrostic. You are you are yes. given an acrostic to use. Totally. So it's snap. I just say stop, which is not easy. Uh, notice. I'm just observe what is going on inside you right now. Like, mm. don't go on autopilot with this rage or this incre- mm. incredulity or this desire to attack or dismiss or be unkind. Notice what's going on. What is getting activated in you right now? Mm. Then ask yourself the question, A, you know, in Snap, you know, you, I stop and ask, is the story that I'm, I, I feel like I'm in right now, is it true? That's good. <laughs> is this yeah. person really attacking me? Because what's happening these days, I think, is... People don't say, uh, it, well, it, it's, it's, issues, it's issues around identity. It, you're no longer mm-hmm. a person. I'm no longer Ian, who is a Democrat. Mm-hmm. It's I'm Ian, the Democrat. In other words, oh, that yeah. is warp and woof of my identity. So it's no mm-hmm. wonder in a political situation that people would fight to the death because it's no longer about an opinion. It's about my core identity. That's, that is how it feels. Oh, it's not a good idea to have mm. your core identity wrapped up in a, a political or a economic or whatever, a Great social point. you know, uh, persona, whatever it is. And then the P is just pivot. Like, do I have to actually go on autopilot and do the same thing I do every, every time mm. in this, these kinds of conversations, which is to get all defensive and try yes. to be surgical in my attack? What if I just actually, you know, gazed upon the other as somebody who is uh, actually how's this? We're all kind of ignorant. <laughs> hmm, I like <laughs> and, this. And we, we cannot, I want a t-shirt. We're yeah, all kind of ignorant, guys. Yeah, and we, yeah. we can't pres- – another – just a little mantra I always tell myself as well. I, ta- I taught this to my kids. I said, never presume to have all the facts about anybody. Mm, that's good. So you don't know who you're talking to. You don't know their that's history. Important. You know, you got to hold these things lightly and be loving first. Mm. Uh, it's just, I feel like if, if those were the sorts of practices, even a quarter of us could put into play, it would fundamentally change the tone of our civil dialogue right now. I think it would change our churches too. Mm-hmm. Um, this, this idea that to some degree, a lot of us want people to walk in the doors of our faith communities and just conform. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just that's how you're going to belong is if you're exactly like the rest of us. And it's so isolating. It's so lonely and it's unhealthy and it's ungodly. Um, we, we fight against that. We've got a church here in Austin and um, you know, we are constantly telling ourselves in leadership, like we have every kind of person in this room. So don't forget it. Don't speak or teach or preach as if every, this is a monolith and everybody shares your personal convictions or your specific ideologies, because that's not true. And it makes people feel really lonely sitting in the room where they're supposed to be finding God. How I'd like to hear you talk a little bit more about how this, um, how this affects our our faith, our personal faith, our, the way that we think about God, the way that we address him, the way that um, we've come to understand this intersection of God and humanity. Um, and then I'd like to hear what you think about how it can, how 
either it's practice or it's absence is harming the church Mm. when we are in community together. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, one way of looking at the Enneagram, you know, we, obviously your listeners can't see the diagram, but uh, the Enneagram is illustrated by these nine types, you know, around a, uh, a circle, illustrative, a, a circle of a kind. Um, and one of the ways of looking at it is all nine of those types represent an expression of an important dimension of God's person or character, right? Oh, that's good. So you have uh, one would be the perfectionist, although I've started to call them the improvers because I, I think it's unfair mm-hmm. that they get kind of a negative name. Um, that's nice. Two, the helpers. Three, the performers, right? Yeah. Well, yeah. ones represent, when they're, when they're healthy, they represent the goodness of God. Yeah. This God who makes all things new and improves things. Two is the love of God. The helpers, totally. right? threes would be the glory or the the generativity of God, right? Mm-hmm. God's a producer. I mean, he gets stuff yeah. done. That's uh, good. Fours uh, would be the beauty and the pathos of God. Five, mm-hmm. the wisdom, uh, these investigators, we call them. Sixes, the loyalists would be the faithfulness, the un- unfailing faithfulness of God. Sevens, the enthusiasts would be the joy of mm. God. Eight, the challengers sure. would be the power of God. And nines, the peace of God, these peacemakers, right? Yes. Now, when you and I, as uh, followers of Jesus, uh, these are we have all of these things in us because we're image bearers, but there's one we're really good at. Yeah. <laughs> like That's I'm right. really good at, at creating things of beauty and, and yeah. having a heart that, that can go into dark spaces and with empathy and, and help people. Yes. Now, when I'm using that gift in service to the agenda of my ego mm, and, trying, and trying to get other to try using it, uh, using my superpower, if you will, yes. as a way to manipulate other people to organize their lives around meeting my agenda, hmm. then then it becomes a gross distortion of the original gift, right? Mm-hmm. What we want to do is become aware of it and put it to right size it to put it in service to the advancement of God's program of redemption in the world. That's good. And then suddenly. Uh, everything starts to work, <laughs> you know, yes. and we begin to appreciate too all these other gifts in the room, right? Like, not everybody got my gift, but you know, I'm not an improver. I'm not a. Right. I, I don't have the. I don't have your gifts, and and we begin yeah. to recognize we need them all. That's right. We need them all, and so for faith communities, incredibly important. And by the way, I tell preachers and worship leaders now, once they know the enneagram, I said, you know. You got to stop leading songs and praying prayers and giving sermons with the assumption that everybody sees the world and experiences it the way you do. That's right. It's or, hard. Yeah, or that they'll hear it the way you would. Yes. Um, so, you know, I just get excited about all these different applications uh, for people and also to help them see how each of our our types really are reflections of the way we in our particularity carry a wonderful gift that if used for the wrong reasons becomes really ugly. Mm, That's so, um, it's really powerful. And it's funny as somebody who is a performer and a producer, um, I, my constant 
the, the mean voice in my head is always saying, always saying to me, you could be doing more mm-hmm. always. You could be doing more. You're not doing enough. You could be working harder. Um, you could, there could be whole new um, drawers you haven't even opened. And, um, and so when I'm healthy and I begin to think of my community in terms of everyone, everyone representing some facet of God in some beautiful, wonderful way. It's a relief Mm -hmm. because then I'm like, I don't have to do everything because I cannot. So the twos can be doing the two stuff that they love and that they thrive on. And thank goodness for the ones I can't think about three details in a row without losing my mind. I mean, I just want to pull my hair out. So then it feels like an amazing relief. And it's that, it's that thing that you've mentioned here several times now, which is, um, we don't always have to be on the shadow side of things. The Enneagram offers us this really beautiful path to see what's wonderful about people who are different from us, not just the stuff that bugs us um, because they're not good at right. what we are good at, or they don't think of the world like we think, which is so aggravating. Like, why can't you just see this? It's plain. Um, why can't you just understand this? It's plain. I'm having to put this into practice right now. All right, guys, quick break to tell you about something I'm super excited about. So listen, if you're feeling like you spend too much, eat too much, own too much, waste too much, you might want to check out the seven experiment video series and books I developed and take the seven week challenge against excess that literally changed our family's lives permanently. And hey, if you'll use the code podcast at checkout, you'll get $10 off any package. And if you already have the book, and some of you do, we have a package for you too, and the code still counts. You can find out more about all of this at the7experiment.com. Let's just get in the weeds here. I I would love for you to to teach me and tell me how tell me what to do. I'm having to put this in practice right now with this very public, very controversial and supercharged public discussion on gun control. Um, because I see this one way, and I think that way is crystal clear. I mean, absolutely crystal clear. And then um, the underside of me wants to say, if you do not see it this way, you are a flawed human being. <laughs> so something is wrong with you and you need to get saved. So <laughs> that's not helpful. That's, I found that not to be helpful. And I have not found that a good tool in dialogue at all, if you can, I can imagine. And so it's, it's, it's like applying this sort of wisdom into really hard conversations like that. What would you say? Like where I feel as if lives are at stake because they are. And, um, but I, I can squash a conversation in three seconds flat because I'm, I struggle so hard to listen to anybody's alternative perspective or their point of view or what they're worried about. Um, because I, I just see it differently. So, I mean, if we're just going to pull that into the, into the center ring as an, as an example, um, how would you counsel Christians engaging that specific conversation right now when we're all over the map? Yeah. Well, I know, right? I didn't get, I didn't, I didn't prep you for this one. Sorry. No, no, it's, 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 it's perfectly fine. I, let me say this. This is just a social observation in general. It's speculative, but I think there's enough evidence that we should pay attention to it. Um, we believe that there are more 
Enneagram sixes in the world than any other type. I read that. Now, the sixes are called the loyalists, sometimes called the devil's advocate. Uh-huh. And their underlying motion, uh, motivation, the thing that really drives the way they think, feel, and behave, right? That's all the stuff above the waterline that that we experience of those people on a daily basis, right? No. But underneath it is this, this compulsive need to feel safe and secure and supported in the world, okay? Hmm. Now, those people are – they tend to be easily manipulated by fear. Hmm. Um, they are uh, people who um, are very focused on who the authority figure is because, of course, they hmm. want an authority figure to whom – because they see the authority figure as the source of their support and security and safety, right? So they're watching very, very carefully. Now, if you live in a country where there's all this – where, the, let's say, the most people here are, are anxious in hmm. their nature – Right, mm-hmm. that they are fixated. Their their attention is fixated on authority figures to see if they are going to f- take care of them. Right. Mm-hmm. Imagine how powerful it is when someone stands up and says to a group of people like that, "I am the only person who can keep you safe." Yeah. Okay. So it it has great bearing on our political system. Right now, on mm-hmm. the specifically on the gun control issue, people are afraid. <laughs> And I think the word gun control is code. I mean, I think mm-hmm. obviously, you know, it arouses all kinds of other things, but it, 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 it's not just about guns. It's about anxiety and fear and uncertainty and uh, all the what ifs and the worst case scenario planning. Yeah. And, and uh, what what if people attack me or, mm-hmm. you know, or, yeah. or it's – so I think it's either people who are very fearful – uh, or it's people who are very fearful and don't know that they're very mm. fearful. And um, I have to keep those things in mind when I'm speaking to people and listening to them. I mean, I agree with you. I mean, I I, I completely agree with probably mm-hmm. with your, your position. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But again, you know, this also goes back to that question of identity. I mean, our opinions now form our identities. And as people of mm. faith, we should be talking right. about my identity is rooted and hidden in Christ. That's good. It's not my politics. It's not my social yeah. position. It's not even my gender. It's not even, you know what I mean? And I could argue across mm. the board. It is nothing. Sure. It is beyond my imagination how my identity is rooted in Christ. These are lesser mm. stories, important stories, but lesser ones. So ooh, I think also, that would tend to turn the heat down on the conversation if I realize this is not my point. identity. This is my position. Mm. Nor that person's identity. Whether they know it or not. Uh-huh. I mean, because I, I, as much as I want grace for myself on not being identified with an opinion, I, I, I'm not necessarily as quick to give that grace. Mm-hmm. I, I, I want the wiggle room, but I, everybody else gets tied to their opinions. So it really is. I mean, a spiritual practice yes. um, to put into place and to deeply see humanity behind an opinion, to be able to develop eyes to see fear or pain behind an opinion. Um, because that's true for all of us. It's true for me, of yeah. course. It's true for a lot of my insecurity or it's my angst or my my worry that is actually coming out and it sounds like anger. Okay, or, so let me ask you a question. Yeah. Can I ask you a question? So, ask. All right. Um, and again, this is, I'm being, I don't want to 
I'm not questioning your number here when I ask you this question. Uh, okay. Uh, do you, uh, what matters more to you in life? Do you have a, a, a compulsive need to succeed, to win at all costs, to appear successful to others, That's vi- to, to have recognition mm-hmm. that you are a success mm-hmm. uh, and avoid failure at all costs? So that's mm-hmm. one thing, okay? Mm-hmm. Or are you somebody who um, needs to assert control and strength over others in the environment while at the same time denying uh, your own innocence, your tenderness. It's sort of like hiding your your softer side because you fundamentally see the world as a hostile place where if you let people see the the, that more vulnerable, weak side of Mm. yourself, they'll take advantage of you. can I say yes to both? <laughs> uh, yes and yes. I struggle with um, vulnerability for right, sure. Right. And um, I'm married to a two who loves feelings and loves talking about them. Mm-hmm. And he has told me before, I just, I would, I wish that you would be more vulnerable. I wish you would just talk more about your, how you're feeling. Like um, I, 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 I close that up pretty hard. Okay, so do you, I, I just I, I think I want to feel strong. Okay, I want to appear strong. Okay, so do you do you tend to not engage uh, with feelings because you just can't recognize them in yourself, or because you're like, man, if I reveal too much, you know, that places me in a position where I could be betrayed. Uh, now that may not be true with your husband, but in general, you know, um, or you know, it just takes a lot to get me to a place with a trust, very small trusted view where I can, I mean, do people ever say to you, Jen, you are overly blunt, aggressive, domineering at times and intimidating? Not really. Okay. What, what would they say? Um, I, they probably say I work too hard Mm -hmm. and that the way that they experience me, um, is, it is driven, but I'm also, I'm also a listener and I'm primarily compassionate. I think I'm, I primarily love the people that I'm working with and working for and serving. Um, but I kind of, I will default. This is so stressful. I feel like I'm in counseling and all my, all my listeners are listening. Um, I feel like, um, you're safe with me, Jen. I know. I'm just pretending right now that I'm just talking to you. I feel like if I, (laughs) if I let on too much, what's in there, it's going to be perceived as weakness and that then I've opened myself up for the dogs to come after me. (laughs) So what feels like to me is that I have to, I'm, people will probably say they experienced me as being unruffled and not rattled and strong And, um, you know, people will assign courage to me a lot because, um, you know, my, my stance, my opinions are public. And so they get seen by many and criticized by many. So I think that is what people would say, although it's not necessarily true. Mm -hmm. That's, that's not necessarily how I feel on the inside. Mm -hmm. Um, but I do want everybody else to think that's how I feel on the inside. Yeah, but (laughs) you're, you're describing some of this, uh, that it sounds like who confuses vulnerability with weakness. Yes. Okay. And you, I don't do it in other people. I don't, their vulnerability does not seem weak to me. 
it's just internal. Okay. I, I actually respect it and admire it in other people and I'm drawn to it. And in small batch settings where it's incredibly curated by me, I, I can be all in the middle of that river. Right. Um, but it just not, not big, not mm-hmm. big at all. You know, I would, if we had time, we can, maybe, maybe I'll have you on typology. We can do it on there. Um, but you, you have features of another number that are really Significant. What do you think it is? Oh, I don't want to say it because I never say. I, I it would you take don't. a longer conversation to 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 tease it out, you know. And I don't. Uh-huh. But but part of it is when you talk about, you know, I see my my position on this as being absolutely right, and someone else's is being absolutely wrong. Well, that's a little mm. bit of dualistic thinking, right? Yes, it is, uh, and it's pretty aggressive. Um, it is. You know, uh, threes are uh, in the aggressive, you know, stance. The three sevens and eights are the three most aggressive yeah. numbers on the enneagram. But um, I would, if if I were you, and so I'm not saying this, but I would say, just take a look at um, what are called social eights. Okay. So you know, there's you know there are subtypes under each type, right? Okay, right. Okay. Now a social eight is not um, like I know lots of women who are social eights, and they have mm-hmm. a lot of times people don't believe they're eights because they actually have this very nurturing, kind side. They're protectors. In fact, if I were a social aide, I would be more likely, rather than calling you a challenger, I would call that subtype the protector. Hmm. Um, and they're very concerned with protecting the underdog or people yes. who giving Gosh. voice, you know, being a mm-hmm. voice for the voiceless, um, yep. for the weak. Uh, and mm. uh, it's a, they're, you know, aides when they're healthy are just they're just they're Martin Luther King. They're exquisite human mm. beings when they're when that all that energy is channeled and, and rooted in love, you know. Mm. And I just I hear so I'm not saying you are. I would never tell you you mm. are. People have to self-verify. But I I would just be for curiosity. I mm. would go maybe when I get off, I'll try and find a little piece on on social eights um, because it's interesting. You have this. Uh, I, dare I use the word energy? It's not a new age mm-hmm. word, but let's face right. it, everybody does have some kind of sure. energy. Yep. And you, we better, That's a weird me, I don't know. Yeah, because we would have been dead on the Serengeti 20,000 years ago right. if we didn't pick up on other things' energy, right? Totally. Like, Hello, right. I'm a baboon. You're a lion. I, you know, I'm picking that up. You know. Um, so <laughs> yes. anyway, I and this is the beauty of the Enneagram, by the way, which is mm-hmm. that it's this uh, journey of self It took me 10 months. I'm a therapist and an Episcopal priest. Yeah. You would think yeah. that I would have gotten it in a flash. Ten right months, away. 10 months to get my my number on the Enneagram right. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Did you misdiagnose your own self? Oh, yeah. Are you kidding? Did you do that because of the way you answered the questions? Did you answer how you felt like you should have answered? Okay. So the first thing is about tests. They're only right about 55% of the time hmm. because uh-huh. they're self-report assessments and they don't That's know, right. They don't know whether or not you're self-aware enough to answer accurately. It's a good point. So I always tell people, workshop, read read books. That's the only way you're going to get your type uh-huh. in a way that's, you know, probably going to be correct and not misidentifying uh-huh. yourself. All right. That said, so um, I had to actually go the next level down and look at the subtypes uh, mm. fours. And by the way, on tests, I always come up as a seven. Oh, interesting. Even on my own assessment, I come up as a seven. Do you? And I am a social, I am a self-preservation four. And uh, I mm. had to go down and look at the subtypes to figure out, oh, I really am a four. That oh, I just happen to be a four that often appears like a three or seven. Oh, that's so interesting. Gosh, I wanted to be a seven. The sevens are so fun. Right? 
I want it's Colbert. It is. It is. Our shared mutual friend, Shauna Nequist, she's been telling me for years, you are a seven. And then when I read it, I'm like, yes, I want to be that person. And I'm just not. (laughs) I'm just not. She is. Okay. So hold on. Shauna says she thinks you're a seven. All right. So check this out. Check this out. Um, It's sometimes that people uh, give me a number that's next door to another number that they think they might be. I pay mm-hmm. attention, mm-hmm. right? Because often it means that mm-hmm. one is their wing and the other one is their core. Sure. And so, so I would actually maybe look at the, the possibility of eight, seven wing. Okay, so, this is really – you're blowing my mind right now. And I don't I'm know this. Out. And I'm not – I am – I you know, whew, I am not – let me tell your listeners. It would be – it's wrong to try – <laughs> when you tell somebody their number, it's wrong. It's bad. You must be punished like a dog who has peed in the house. Fair. I just say to people, look, um, you may be a three for sure. Um, Mm. But I would also suggest on the journey that you take a look at this other number just to see if it resonates more with you. I will. Um, And I tend to latch on to quick diagnoses. So if, if, if the test tells me a three and it feels right, I'm like, well, I'm a three. I'm going to get a tattoo. You know, I mean, that's it. They're, they're, we can never change. So I'm going to go back and I'm going to read it like that. I'm again, I'm not incredibly good at being self-aware. Right. Um, I do. I live a lot of my life externally and um, I like production and I like to do, and I love people and I'm fascinated in other people. So yep. um, I, I'm, I like this conversation. Okay. So you had Joe Saxton on recently. I sure did. I, I had her on my 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 podcast typology a couple of weeks ago. She is an eight. Yeah, she told me that. I think. Okay, and uh, with as I'm sure she's got a seven wing. I don't know that for sure, but she has all oh, that yes, kind her of big fun oh, loving self. Energy. I mean, yes. she has the best uh-huh. laugh of any human being on the planet, right? <laughs> I do love her. So let me ask you another question. First of all, thank you for thank you for sending me down what will undoubtedly be my spring break rabbit hole. Um, (laughs) um, I want to talk about something that you wrote in chasing Francis, which is just a wonderful book. I mean, just absolutely wonderful. And, and you, you talk about community and how it's such an important part of where our, our spiritual beliefs and our faith comes into play. And, um, you wrote that if Francis of Assisi were alive today, that He'd say our church community relies too much on words to tell others about our faith. For Francis, the gathered community was a potent as, was as potent a form of witness as words. He was convinced that how we live together is what attracts people to faith. I really something about that is so warm and generous to my soul. Like I actually just love reading the sentence. Mm. Um, I would love to hear you talk about that for a minute. Just what do you see that Christians are doing? to attract others to Jesus in the way that we live with one another? And where do you think we could use a little help with this concept? Because I mm. think this is so spot on. I, it just zings me like right in the heart. Well, you know, I'll tell you, because I get around like you to a lot of churches, right? Um, the first thing I'd say is where I'm seeing particular effectiveness and in terms of community is where communities are holding up beauty as a value. Um, We, we Aquinas and others, they talked about God ultimately being ultimate, 
ultimate ultimate truth, ultimate beauty, ultimate goodness. And you can't have one without the other two being present at any one moment. So, um, you know, we've spent so much time in the last who knows many years arguing with each other over what's goodness and what's true. Hmm. And uh, when and so and you can take positions pretty easily on that, but it's very hard to take a position on beauty. Beauty is just its own best defense. It, mm-hmm. it just is, right? And beauty reveals the heart of God. I mean, you know, whenever you see something that's beautiful, read something beautiful, hear something beautiful. If it isn't, if it doesn't, you know, ping you with an echo uh, mm-hmm. of the garden, you know, like of of a signpost to a country far away, then you know, I mean, so. I think communities that are beginning to discover uh, beauty and sharing it with the world and saying, you know, here you can come experience who God is in this immersion in in uh, a place and of beauty where beauty is held up as a value. I don't know. Mm. When I see those communities, I just uh, my heart thrills. Maybe because I'm a four, mm. but also because I mm, know true. they're magnetic, right? These are things communities can do to to be signposts in the world. And, and by the way, I think we got to get rid of cynicism. Mm, gosh, so, do you have a plan for that? Do you no. have a? Is it possible? Yeah, it is possible. It's. Mm. You know, I think everybody should be skeptical, right? That's mm-hmm. just being smart. But uh, but cynicism is corrosive, and sure it, is. it it really basically is so closed-hearted, and it it, mm. it 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 views the world. I mean, it's actually a cheap form of grief, is what it mm. is. It's interesting. It's sort of defaulting to this resignation and this kind of you know the eyes rolling with you know the ironic sure. eye roll and. I mean, I just think I'm I'm fed up of it. You know, I'm, I'm yeah, it's exhausting. It. Oh, golly, it's enervating. Who needs it? Got to get hopeful. Truly, uh, and even as you're saying it, when I see a, a a faith community, a people that just exude beauty as a value, it's just so it's so hopeful. It mm-hmm. feels so right. It feels like a little light, a lamp on a dark street and yes. I'm so drawn to it. And, and to the original quote of yours from the book, it's not necessarily about all the words they're saying. Uh-uh. It's not at all. It's about the way that they're living both yes. with each other, with their neighbors, yes. um, what they're prioritizing. It's so beautiful. I just, yeah. we're in need of it. We're yeah. just in need of it right now. So deep. We, what we need less is words. Okay, yes. <laughs> we need so, less words. Like my daughter asked me the other day, you know, you know, we're looking at this new church dad in Denver. And I said, okay, well, how big? She said, you know, it's gigantic. And I said, well, how many people are in there are over 50? Hmm. How old is the pastor? Oh, he's 28. And I right. said, everyone's basically 32. And I'm like, okay, not a bad thing. I'm glad it's there. But basically, if you're all in the same bell curve of age, you're for, it, you're, you run the risk of trading ignorances. Wow. So you you need some yes. you need some wise sages in the room if if they may not be bible experts but they're just life experts. You know, you need yes. 60 80 year olds in there. And uh in that. the mix because you need wisdom not just information. Mm-hmm. Um and also because and this is an enneagram idea, information is not transformation. Oh no, no it isn't. So the Enneagram, I love – this is – you went back to number thumpers, our beginning of our mm-hmm. conversation. They drive me crazy because all they are is interesting at a cocktail party. That's right. right? All they have is a little bit it's of information. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. just a little information about their type. But the, but the thing about the Enneagram is, is that it really requires time and commitment, and 
it it has to be more than information before if it's going to make any difference in your life. It's just to know your number it will not change anything. Positively. No, it's it's deep work. It's deep, deep soul mm-hmm. work. And uh, and the application of it is not easy, but it's profound. Mm-hmm. And it's incredibly, incredibly profound. And you're such a good teacher and guide through this work. And um, we're going to have all your, all your stuff, your books, all your links, all the spaces that you are in up on my website for sure. So people can find you. Um, I want to, I want to ask you one last question. Yep. Just, we wrap it up. I wonder if you would just leave us all, um, all of us listeners with either a quote from a spiritual leader that you love or a scripture that maybe epitomizes your life's work. Um, Mm. and, and that sort of, puts the gas in your tank that that is kind of your true north oh boy i know right oh you might as well have asked me what my favorite record is um uh, okay well i'll just say this i'm just i'll throw one out okay because i okay the, that's great you know i have actually a notebook that a paper notebook that is dedicated to nothing but my favorite quotes so you're killing really? me oh my gosh i have oh, no. hundreds i probably have 800 quotes oh that's amazing right? so my favorite <laughs> My hero in the faith is Thomas Merton. Um, oh, yes. Thomas Merton, uh, New Seeds of Contemplation, uh, mm-hmm. you know, Sign of Jonas, No Man is an Island. I mean, I can't commend him to your to folks enough, right? Yeah. But it, he has a beautiful quote. He, he says, um, the beginning of love is the will to let those we love be perfectly themselves. The resolution mm-hmm. not to twist them to fit our own image. If in loving them, we do not love them, uh, we do not love what they are, but only their potential likeness to ourselves, mm. then we do not love them. We only love the reflection of ourselves we find in them. Wow. Wow. Right? Preach a thousand sermons on that. Oh, my gosh. And I'll give you one more. Okay. okay. I'll just give you one more. Yeah. Uh, and again, this is a, from a Buddhist monk, but I mean, it's it's perennial truth, so I don't care about yep. the source. Yep. Thich Nhat yep. Hanh says, smile, period, breathe, period, mm. go slowly, period. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That's so beautiful. That's often my mantra is smile, mm-hmm. Breathe. Go slowly. Go slowly. Um, that would that would that would cure what ails us right now. Yeah. <laughs> more smiles, more breathing, more going at it slowly. I think yeah. that is actually beautiful words to live by. All right. Listen, thank you. Thank you for being on the show today. Yeah. Thank you for I'm at a ball. <laughs> Listen, just thanks for being who you are and how you are. I um just such a trustworthy guide, and that's I value that so much. So um I, and now I need to come on typology. And like practice being vulnerable in front of all of your people. That's got to be good for me. It can't be bad. I I can get it. I can get it. (laughs) I don't doubt it for a second. We'll we'll create a safe place for it because, (laughs) you know, you know, vulnerability is not weakness. It's courage. Great courage. Um, Okay. Appreciate (laughs) you so much. Thanks for being on today. Thanks, Jen. Appreciate it. Okay. I'm like totally sweaty in my armpits. (laughs) <laughs> only Ian Cron can get me to say all that stuff into your ears. <laughs> uh, fascinating. Amazing. He's really great. Really, really great. If you haven't been aware of his work or exposed to any of it, you're for sure going to want to go over to jenhatmaker.com under the podcast tab and look at our transcript. I tell you guys all the time, but our transcript page is an amazing resource for you. So we'll have 
everything linked over there that we talked about, all of Ian's work, his sites, his books, um, bonus content. Sometimes it's just nice to go back and read a conversation after you've listened to it. Um, seeing it sometimes on the page for me is that kind of learner, um, really solidifies some things that I heard. So anyhow, um, Everything about Ian will be over there, where to find him on social media and all that good stuff. Um, Thanks for listening. This series, you guys, is just so amazing. (laughs) I love it. I mean, it could literally be a hundred episodes and I would never get tired of it. So thanks for being here. Um, Thanks for listening week in and week out. I love your feedback. I'm paying attention to everything you say, you guys. So um, have a great week. You will not want to miss my guest next week. I promise you that. Um, And I'll see you next time. Hey guys, we're back for another segment of Jen's Favorite Things. This is the part of the show where I share about some wonderful companies that are producing amazing products and giving back to charitable organizations and really worthy nonprofits. Plus, they have exclusive discounts and extras just for you, our podcast listeners. So here are today's favorites. So Bear Soaps. The Bear Soap Sampler Pack is the perfect Mother's Day gift. Comes with four samples of their top-selling handmade bars, all in this branded cotton bag, and it gives back to women. So use the code GINHATMAKER15 for 15% off at bear-soaps.com. Allison and Aubrey is an affordable on-trend jewelry line by mother-daughter duo Allison and Aubrey Lombatis to encourage women to borrow and bond over their love of style and accessories. So get 15% off with code for the love 15 at allisonandaubrey.com. That's it for today's show. Hope you enjoyed this chat. Be sure to subscribe to my mom's podcast and give it a thumbs up rating if you like it. From the whole Hatmaker family, I hope you have a great week and see you next time.